This is an ABC podcast. Good fella morning, aloha kako, and good morning. It's Eggy here, your host for Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Pacific Beat comes to you from the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Thank you very much for joining me this morning and today on the show. While well, there's been major scenes of riots and looting in Port Moresby and Papua New Guinea, so we'll go live to get the latest. There's also a new variant of COVID. It's rearing its ugly head in the Pacific. Particularly New South Wales and Victoria are doing a lot of monitoring still. They're monitoring wastewater. They look at hospital reports, cases, deaths. But that's not necessarily happening as quickly in all countries in the Pacific. Fiji has recently released an update. And I think it's just really important for people to continue to be respectful and to protect themselves and others. And a young man of the Sikh community has sparked a cultural revival within Fiji's police force. To become a police officer was my childhood dream. I haven't seen a fully Sikh officer wearing a turban. If I got the opportunity, so I wanted to become a police officer with a turban. So, uh, more on those stories today. Simply stay tuned. I'm Eggie Dubo and this is Pacific Beat, yours in the Pacific. Firstly, it's been a chaotic security situation unfolding in Papua New Guinea. The Defence Force has been called in to try and quell significant unrest in the nation's capital. What began as a demonstration by public servants yesterday, furious over their pay unexpectedly being reduced, has turned into rioting across the city, with many stores being looted and burnt to the ground. Late last night, paramedics said they were aware of many patients with severe burns and a number with gunshot wounds. As riot turned violent into the evening. Police reinforcements are being flown into Port Moresby, while Cabinet has approved defence to assist police in restoring order. So joining us with the latest details from Port Moresby is our PNG correspondent Tim Swanson. With that, I say good morning, sir. Good morning, Aggie. Hey, Tim. Uh, look, firstly, I do just want to start off by saying you've been in the thick of it, you know, having to report on this. I mean, how are you doing? Yeah, look, we're okay. Uh, Yesterday afternoon was certainly pretty hair-raising. There was a one o'clock scheduled press conference with the Prime Minister yesterday uh, over an education uh, budget announcement, actually. But, of course, it was an opportunity to ask him about the protests that had been kicking off in the morning. Um, But at the end of the press conference is when a very large crowd turned up outside the Prime Minister's office um, they torched the guardhouse there, as well as one of the security guard, one of the security cars just outside. Um, so we were trapped inside that building for several hours. Many of the journalists here in Port Moresby uh, were trapped inside that building for several hours, while police and defence, uh, you know, arrived and, and tried their best to disperse the crowd. They were, of course, very angry. They were demanding to see the Prime Minister a call that they'd been making all morning uh, related to this issue over payroll. Um, so certainly that, uh, you know, raised a few hairs on the back of the neck yesterday afternoon. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it has been a pretty harrowing night, ultimately. I mean, of course, uh, seeing the vision and the pictures that have come in, I'm sure people are probably waking to some of those now. Um, very considerable, you know, amounts of fires, looting taking place right across the city. Uh, and certainly many gunshots were heard right late into the night as well. Likely gunfire from police trying to disperse crowds but also possibly gunfire as well from residents. Uh, so, yeah, a, a very dramatic night for the city in the whole. Mm, absolutely. But, look, we are glad to hear that you are safe. Uh, and uh, as I described in the intro, yes, it's been a chaotic night, but have things calmed down at all? 
Look, uh, still remains to be seen on the early light of day. I mean, of course, there's there's a fair bit of smoke uh, that's around Port Moresby at the moment. That's unsurprising given just how much of the city appears to have been torched overnight. You know, so many shops, so many retail stores um, appear to have been looted and then burnt to the ground. Uh, Late last night, of course, we know that defence and police um, started to mobilise. We saw a statement from the Commissioner of Police, David Manning, um, that he was sending in extra police forces from across the country um, so several officers from Lay appear to have been arriving. Uh, so I think about 180 officers total um, have been uh, sent in to try and assist. And of course, late last um, yesterday evening, rather, uh, the uh, national cabinet approved uh, defence to try and assist in in restoring order to pockets of the city as well. That being said, though, monitoring the security feeds overnight, it does appear that there were still quite a large number of break and enters in some suburbs as well overnight. So it remains to be seen, I guess, this morning exactly what the situation and the security situation is, um, but and whether or not police and defence have been able to kind of get on top of that um, that behaviour that we saw last night. Mm. Uh, for those who probably are just waking up and weren't aware of what was happening, uh, I believe you've reported that initially it was a peaceful protest. So how did it really just turn into such violent riots and looting? Yeah, it's quite a convoluted series of events and one that I imagine will be, you know, the subject of many much speculation and, and even investigations, to be honest, to come. I mean, what, what, what began sort of about 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning was a rally, a gathering of police, defence and other public servants. They were at an oval in Gordon's just near Parliament House. Um, they were, you know, quite upset over their pay. Many of them had checked their pay in the morning and they'd been docked about 300 keener or or so, um, about 100 Australian dollars. Um, Now, they were uh, very incensed by this. Many were feeling that it was a new tax or something of the sort. Um, They marched on Parliament, you know, drove in the cars and, and, and basically fronted up to the front of Parliament House demanding to speak to the Prime Minister. The Speaker of Parliament came out to try and address them. Um, But eventually, um, basically, police leadership ended up turning most of the police away from Parliament House. So there was sort of a sense that things were starting to return to normal, I guess, after that kind of protest that was led to the gates of led just inside um, uh, the the grounds of Parliament House. But it appears while that's been happening, um, people have taken advantage of the security situation in Port Moresby. It appears that that's when some of the looting and the riots have kind of started. um, And then that's something that's really escalated into the evening and into the afternoon. So we know that the Commissioner of Police, he certainly hasn't minced his words. He's saying that he's not defending or making excuses for the actions of members of the RPNGC that left our streets vulnerable. Um, And it does appear that he's likely to investigate the circumstances in which led to this. Um, And just on that pay issue, the, 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 reasoning that the government ended up giving later related to um, they said it was a payroll glitch, but ultimately it became clear that the Prime Minister was blaming Department of Finance staff for basically not updating national payroll for the beginning of this year to reflect current tax policy, hence the kind of surprise deduction in pay. Um, But the political climate here is just so tense at the moment that, um, you know, seeing some of the violence for many was entirely unsurprising. 
Yeah, look, Tim, I'm sure for all of us, if we were ones who didn't get paid, I know we could just go mm. straight to HR or whatnot. But, you know, with this payroll glitch, I'm wondering, there has to be someone that's responsible for that. I mean, you know, those affected uh, by not be, I suppose, with their pay being um, deducted, are they going to get their pay back? I mean, pay wages aren't the greatest there, right? So it would have been a hard hit for the families. Absolutely. It's a massive impact. So generally who this impacts is people who are earning up to about 20,000 kina, which is, you know, quite a common salary, especially for junior public servants and, and police officers, uh, which is about, you know, about 9,000, 8,000 Australian dollars a year. Um, so, you know, missing out on $100 in the fortnight is a, is a huge hit to your pay packet. So that kind of frustration is, of course, very understandable. The government says that those pay packets will be restored in the next fortnight, in that next cycle of pay. Um, and like I said, the Prime Minister kind of very specifically blamed Department of Finance staff for not, you know, updating the national payroll system to reflect uh, the tax-free threshold it was up to about 20000 Kina. Also, um, but but look, ultimately, I mean, I, I think um, it appears that the political climate has has really played a role here. Of course, a vote of no confidence for the prime minister, the grace period where that vote can't be triggered ends next month. So it's widely expected that a vote of no confidence will be triggered next month. In which case, the floor of parliament will likely be deciding on a prime minister next month. Um, so it means that, you know, the political waters are very, very uh, uh, hot right now. And so, yeah. um, of course, with, with cost of living, with inflation, with all of these things, it appears that uh, it appears that the city's been a bit of a tinderbox and um, yesterday's protests potentially uh, sort of lit, lit, the, lit the fuel. Yeah, definitely not the greatest way to start off the year. So I'm wondering what has the response been from uh, the Prime Minister, James Bernapé? Yeah, so we got a statement from uh, Mr Marape yesterday evening. Um, now, in that statement, um, of course, he was describing that National Cabinet approved for defence to assist police restoring order in the city. He was appealing for citizens to protect the city. He said that police and public servant grievances are being addressed and the next pay, the lost salary, would be restored. Um, but he said to the public, this is your country. The business houses pay taxes. These taxes pay your kids' school fees as well as the salary we all learn. Let, uh, we all earn. Let's protect them. Um, but just looking at some of the other reaction that's around this morning, uh, the governor of National Capital District, Powers Parkop, has described today as a sad and sombre day for our beloved city, Port Moresby. Uh, regrettably, we were witnessed internal strife. Uh, here's, a, uh, here's a statement from... Um, independent Governor Alan Bird, he says that it's a dark day in our history, a day he always feared occurred today. So certainly the mood across the country is very sombre as well, looking at these just extraordinary images. The front page of the Post Courier certainly reflects that this morning. It says darkest day in our city and the strap that it's running at the top of the uh, of these pages is City Burns with just these extraordinary images of so many shops and, and the like that are on fire. So we're likely to, to probably confirm reports of deaths this morning. Uh, we know that St John's Ambulance were responding last night to uh, many, many call-outs with people who were suffering severe burns and others with gunshot wounds as well. Um, so we're, we're still yet to confirm deaths, but, but it is very likely that we'll confirm those this morning um, in, in really just such an unprecedented situation here in Port Moresby. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm wondering, though, again, safety, what has been advised to the community around this, and especially for our listeners if they're treating in right now? 
Mm, well, I mean, for Australians, I mean, the Oz Smart Traveller advice has been updated at the moment that there's widespread civil disorder, violence and looting in Port Moresby. The Australian High Commission has implemented heightened security measures uh, because protests and civil disorder can escalate quickly. Of course, those living in town, you know, are very security conscious anyway, but the security advice has just escalated to its utmost. Um, but to be honest, there's probably not much of a reason to be out on the streets today. A, you know, huge swathe of business businesses are likely to be closed, either because they've been burnt down or because, um, you know, uh, uh, companies won't want the risk of their staff travelling out this morning as well. So um, it is a very tense security situation still here in Port Moresby. Um, but, uh, of course, we're going to try and do our best to, to survey and, and see exactly what the kind of damage has been overnight. But it's safe to say, looking at some of the videos that I was seeing last night, that it's going to be considerable. Mm, Tim, can I ask though, are you aware of any help coming through in, in the sense of, of course, there's businesses that have probably been burnt down. Uh, does that affect, uh, I suppose, food security, uh, water and things like that having to get into the city? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll likely be, and speaking to senior business leaders late last night, um, there'll likely be enormous supply chain issues as well as related to food security, of course. I mean, while, while a handful of people, of course, have looted, um, you know, the, the remainder of the city will, will be severely ultimately punished by, by those decisions, you know, because if so many shops have been burnt down and the like, then that will have a huge impact on food security at this stage. Um, you know, as far as external support, I haven't seen anything um, especially yet. I mean, I imagine now that the light of day is kind of broken. We're probably going to see, uh, you know, some, likely some statements and responses and that kind of thing to see what support or, or assistance could be available. Um, but at this stage, certainly many businesses are just kind of coming to terms with their losses. Of course, speaking to them last night, they were mostly concerned about their staff. Um, and most said that their, their staff were, were all okay, but they were still describing there's just absolutely harrowing scenes as hundreds of people were, were overwhelming security forces and, and flooding their businesses to, to, to loot them and, and burn them down. So, um, yeah, it's and, and looking at even, um, you know, it, it's likely that banks are going to be closed today and into the coming days. It's likely that the, the supermarkets and shops that have survived are likely to be closed as well. Uh, the, the, the coming week is, is going to be a very difficult week for Port Moresby, no doubt, and it could have ramifications. Well, it will have ramifications for months, ultimately, for these businesses trying to pick up their livelihoods and the like, uh, as well as families. You know, people will miss out on paychecks because these businesses have been destroyed as well. Uh, the impact is just going to be astronomical. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you did say earlier 180 officers that are being brought in. I'm assuming that this is going to continue continue for a little bit, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, look, uh, like I said, I'm still waiting to see this morning as to exactly what the security situation on the streets is like. Um, but yesterday was just such a, such a dramatic turn of events, the way that that unfolded. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how this carries on and, and how swiftly police and defence are able to try and restore order. And like I said, there'll be some very, very serious questions that they'll be asking um, themselves and many will be demanding to, to, to get police to answer after effectively those, those protests in the morning spearheaded by police and defence um, then shortly followed by, you know, such, such massive civil unrest. Nice. Okay. Well, Tim, look, we just hope that you stay safe. We appreciate that you are reporting on this. Uh, we, we hope that this ends sooner than later.
Thanks, Aggie. No worries. That, of course, is PNG correspondent Tim Swanston. We are continuing our coverage uh, in regards to uh, this uh, looting and riots that have been happening in Port Moresby. Uh, we had PNG's opposition leader, Joseph Lelung, saying the protest was the spark to tension that's been building up in Port Moresby for some time due to high unemployment and increases in the cost of living. He spoke with our reporter, Marion Farr. Due to increases in tax on their personal income tax. And so they have protested as a result of that. The burning and the looting around the city, the chaos, is a result of opportunists took advantage of the situation and decided to uh, go on a rampage. Uh, that is what happened. It's really not a disciplinary process who have um, rightfully expressed their uh, concern over tax increases, personal income tax increases. You mentioned um, the protests by police. Do you support those um, protests and the strike, the action that police and public servants have taken, even though the government has said that this was simply an error um, in the payroll system? That is their constitutional right to go and express their grievances about this matter. My view is that you have an environment, an economic environment, where inflation is extremely high over the last few years in Papua New Guinea. Add on to that, employment is very, very hard to combine. Unemployment has gone through the roof. And when you have this situation where there is no corresponding increase in wages, real wages have dropped. And when you start to tax, increase the tax of our people, of workers, particularly the, the lower bracket, income bracket, then you are really, that's, it's the last straw. And that is why they are out in public protesting. Why do you think we've seen on top of the police protests, citizens go out and raid shopping centres and set fire to buildings? What do you think is the motivating factor for that? Why has this blown up into what it is? As I I have said, unemployment is very, very high. For example, the police force, they had um, a number of positions available to the public, say, 400 positions, and you have over 10,000 people lining up to find to try to get uh, the job. You have uh, 30 jobs offered by, say, one of the international hotels, or five-star hotels here in, in Port Mosby, and you have more than 10,000 people lining up. It's just bad. And I think the government may have underestimated the economic hardships and difficulties that our people are facing here. And so there are many frustrated people out there and, and this is the only way they can air their frustration. This is what I'm thinking. Although I cannot rule out the fact that there are opportunists out there who just want to use the situation to uh, commit crime and uh, chaos in the country uh, and in the city. So Now, I know that um, Prime Minister Marape is coming up to his the, the grace period after his election is, is about to expire. Um, do you think that we may see a motion of no confidence against the Prime Minister? I know there's been some talks about that. I know there are a lot of talks around the place uh, concerning the vote of no confidence, and um, it's really up to members of parliament and the coalition partners if they uh, believe that uh, the prime minister is doing a good job, you know, there's really no need for a vote of no confidence. But if he is not, obviously there will be one. And I think that's a matter that all the party leaders and the coalition partners uh, will arrive at. Mr. Leleng, that's all I had to ask. Is there anything else you wanted to say before we wrap up the interview? I'm just sad that, uh, you know, we have come to this stage and, and that we have uh, chaos now in the city and the burning of business houses and looting and all that. And uh, it's a really sad situation. And, you know, I'll be um, 
but I'm 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 a bit happy. I'm a bit happy that at least in some parts of the city, the uh, police and the defense force have, have tried to uh, take the control of the situation. So I'm just hoping that everything will come back to uh, normalcy and that uh, the prime minister must come out and, and address this situation that is now before before the nation. And that was PNG's opposition leader Joseph Lelang speaking with Marion Farr. Well, still staying in PNG, there's been a renewed debate about the ongoing but controversial push to establish a so-called special economic zones in the country, says for short. The national government, led by the Trade Minister Richard Maru, wants to set up more than 20 of the zones around the country, providing tax concessions to businesses who operate in those areas in a bid to boost development. Mr Maru's been involved in a bit of public back and forth in the local media, with Paul Barker from the Institute of National Affairs, who thinks scissors are a bad idea. Well, Mr. Barker joins us this morning, and thank you very much for joining us, sir. Good morning to you. Yeah, appreciate your time this morning. Uh, firstly, I would love for you to take us back to basics. I mean, what is a special economic zone, and why does the government have to support them? Well, special economic zones have been used in various countries around the world as a means to boost disadvantaged areas. They're particularly focused in uh, places where it's felt there's a large uh, population of unemployed people or people who are willing to work for very, very low wages, which uh, may have been the case in in China in the 1980s, the uh, Bangladesh uh, more recently in the clothing industry and so on. Uh, In some cases, uh, you've had uh, disadvantaged areas or decaying areas of urban areas uh, of urban centers and special uh, conditions are applied low tax rates uh, and other incentives to encourage rehabilitation of those areas under certain circumstances they they can work but uh, but there are a lot of experiences from around developing countries of of their failure and and problems with them and so you're saying then from the 80s to now, uh, there's been more of a negative appro- uh, impact rather than a positive? Well, in a few countries they have worked, but around the world uh, there have been a lot of negative uh, scenarios that have occurred in many developing countries. And uh, And a professor of economics in the University of Korea, when I asked him, did you use this mechanism for for uh, rehabilitating or, or getting the uh, South Korean economy going? And he just laughed at me and said, no, no, special economic zones are mechanisms for poor uh, developing countries that feed on cronyism to, uh, to sponsor pet companies and we have chosen uh, and feed uh, opportunities for corruption. We in South Korea chose to make the country a special economic zone, i.e. we created attractive investment conditions across the board rather than leaving it in the hands of, uh, of bureaucrats or officials to, uh, to select uh, which companies or which locations would get special treatment.
It, well, it doesn't sound promising, so I'm wondering. The government there now has plans for more than 20 uh, Caesars to be set up, um, but only a handful have been implemented. So where are they and, and how far have they gone? Well, some uh, special economic zones or pre-economic zones, you could call them, um, were established, for example, the PMIZ in Madang, which was uh, approved and gained sort of finance agreements back in 2008 and really have have got nowhere. It's uh, It gained a very large gate and there were a few land deals that benefited a few individuals, but subsequently no progress has been made. But the ones that have been rolled out have been and have been approved just lately, include a special economic zone right in the heart of the national capital, where, you know, business usually is relatively attractive anyway, uh, until we have riots like uh, yesterday, but anyway. Um, So there's this Paga Hill special economic zone that's been uh, created. There's been one for uh, a cement factory just down the coast, um, there's been one down in the middle of Gulf province in a very remote area. Um, it has a whole host of issues, but, and there've been plan and there's been one, um, being approved in East New Britain and they're scattered around Oh, one in East CPIC for an agro special economic zone in the CPIC plains. So they've been, uh, I think 14 initial ones, and uh, and as you say, 22 uh, sort of have been proposed by the consultants uh, who've been uh, supporting the ministry. Yeah, because they say that with these special economic zones, uh, it will somehow be a great creator of jobs. Do you agree with that? Is that a fair assessment? I think there, <laughs> the past demonstration with some of these projects like PMIZ is there's a very long lead time and we haven't seen any progress on the ground. And yes, you may get some jobs out of some individual projects, um, but the real issue is it's a sort of an act of desperation. I think the minister really has been saying, look, we've tried everything else and let's give this one a go. And it's happened in various other countries, so let this, let's give this a go. But the issue here really is have you given the other uh, mechanisms a chance? Have you created the environment across the board to encourage uh, business investment to occur? And uh, one of the issues that PNG has is trying to apply the rules across the board. So you've, you have a, an issue where already lots of businesses are, n- are simply not paying their taxes, and but while others are, there's a big tax burden falls on some businesses. And let's face it here, if you're a business, you also have to pay for power. You've got unreliable and expensive power, but you have to have a backup power generator because the power is unreliable. You have to have a lot of security uh, because law and order scenario is not that great. You have a whole host of additional costs that you have to do. So if the government could reduce the uh, the costs of doing business, improve competition in terms of access to basic utilities and infrastructure, ensure widest application of the, the, the rules, the tax rules and other rules, and reduce the tax rates across the board to encourage uh, investment, including reduced tax rates on the higher levels of uh, 
higher grades of tax uh, to citizens, you and to enable access to foreign exchange, you're actually going to make life easier across the board rather than handpicking some companies and saying, well, you guys can get special deals, whereas you guys are going to have to pay full tax and, uh, and normal rates. So it's a lot of it's about trying to, you know, to, to keep a balanced level playing field that is attractive for investment rather than handpicking some players and saying, look, those guys over there are going to have to pay, pay duty, tax, and everything else, but we're going to give you exemptions on imported Teslas, on imported goods and services, and so on. Yeah, Mr. Barker, we, we talk about, you know, having to see it as a major driver for sustainable and inclusive economic growth, though. And then you've mentioned it is meant to somehow help those who are a little bit less fortunate. But what has been the response from the community? Are they happy about seeing special economic zones? I think there's a level of scepticism. I mean, some people are going to say, well, look, give the government a chance. You know, you're coming up with something that's new and maybe maybe it will work. But there's a level of scepticism. And it's partly because um, some of these initiatives have been on the drawing board for a long time, but actually have been, in some cases, financed for a long time. And we've not seen progress. But also because some of the players who seem to have been awarded these special economic zones are not necessarily companies that have, you'd say, deserved a big pat on the back on the basis of what they've been doing in the past. Some of them have acquired land through rather unconventional means. Others have been uh, driving uh, projects uh, like coal-fired power stations and so on, um, which clearly are trying to sort of promote certain activities um, uh, and maybe at the expense of some other activities and business opportunities. Well, we've obviously seen some sort of, you know, chaos that has been happening there in PNG, which I know you're well aware of. So while we've got you, Paul, can you give us your thoughts around the violence that uh, we all saw in Port Moresby yesterday? Where do you think it came from? Well, it was a great tragedy because, uh, you know, what the government is saying, it was a glitch. Uh, and it was it became a very expensive glitch. So uh, it was a glitch, whatever one called it. There was no tax increase that was meant to happen in the 2024 budget. It was quite clear that the, the tax rates were meant to be the same as the temporary uh, tax rates in 2023. And yet, when the payroll came out in the first payroll, um, public servants saw an increase in tax. So that was seen by police and, and security services. So they decided that they would have a, a sort of work to rule and, and go and protest to the government. And, of course, it was opportunism um, that was led to all the uh, large groups, gangs from the settlements to head out and to raid all the stores, uh, warehouses, and so on. Now, the fact that that happened so quickly, it could just be that people had access to social media and so on, but there is certainly a suspicion that there were some players who were orchestrating the exercise and that maybe it had a, a political aspect to it as well. So uh, mm. it, it's an extremely unfortunate situation because as many people have observed, the businesses that were um, raided were taxpaying businesses. 
the the small portion that have been doing the right thing that have lived through through the um, the pandemic really struggled their way through the pandemic and then um, you know have had no special benefits. Some of them have had problems in the past, like there was a, a fire for one of those businesses. It struggled to survive. Uh, business, their business struggled to survive after that. Now, some of those supermarket chains have seen two of their stores burned down and several of their other stores and warehouse um, raided. So this puts a massive burden on, on these businesses that, as I say, are, as well as causing uh, fear and uh, anxiety across the whole community. But certain, um, as some people have observed, the have-nots have certainly become temporarily haves as they've wheeled out um, everything from barbecues to shopping baskets filled with goods. And uh, But one question that I have is where are people going to be getting their food supplies over the next, uh, next days and weeks? Because all those stores are going to have been cleaned out. And yeah. That's a real challenge. Absolutely. I'm wondering, though, from your perspective, what, if anything, could be done to lessen the chance of this happening again? Well, it just demonstrates that sort of uh, social cohesion is a fragile thing. It does very much require the communities to work together, and it requires the police all to be there in place, uh, supported by, uh, where necessary, by defence and other uh, security, as well as the private security guards. So it does require uh, very close cooperation and cohesion. There was no justification in, uh, as I say, there was meant to be no tax increase. So how come people didn't talk to each other? One of the points that people have been raising is when you have concerns, there are not the automatic mechanisms for raising concerns with government and uh, and appeasing situations where uh, so the need to be much better mechanisms for automatic dialogue and and that you know you don't lay down the police don't stop work if they've got concerns that they are immediately their unions and their management are in dialogue and and if there are concerns they are they're resolved properly and as in this instance if there should have been no concerns anyway because there should have been no tax increase imposed, then you know, it could have been resolved before it even started. So it demonstrates that that all parties, the bureaucracy, uh, we have 1,300 government institutions here. Often they don't talk, talk to each other. There's a need for government institutions to coordinate much better and for constant uh, dialogue with with the people who are at the bottom of the rung. So that's the rank and file, uh, public servants, um, including police and so on, and with the community. It'll definitely be something for the government to contend with this year. Um, but yeah, uh, Mr. Barker, we really appreciate your time this morning. Such a good insight into, of course, the special economic zones and then your thoughts there on the riots that have been happening. I do hope that you keep safe uh, and hope we can catch up on better terms. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no worries. Thank you so much. That, of course, is Paul Barker from the Institute of National Affairs here on Pacific Beat. 
As we head to Fiji, it's known for its cultural diversity in the South Pacific, with a significant portion of its population descended from Indian indentured labourers. Among this demographic are a minority of Sikhs, who trace their origins to free migrants from Punjab. Once distinguishable by their turbans, this practice faded until recently, when a farmer's son sparked a cultural revival as he entered the country's police force. Here's our Fiji reporter, Lide Movono. In Vanuilevu's Ndriketi, Fiji's second largest island, a young dreamer set his sights on joining the Fiji police force. My father is a well-known farmer in Vanuilevu and he used to teach me a lesson that uh, if you respect others, respect will be given to you. For 20-year-old Navjit Sohata, policing was not just a career choice, but a calling that aligned with his values. Yet doubts lingered about his acceptance into the force, particularly as a turban-wearing Sikh. To become a police officer was my childhood dream. I haven't seen a fully Sikh officer wearing a turban. If I got the opportunity, so I wanted to become a police officer with a turban. Christians make up 64% of the population in Fiji, while Sikhism, a faith that originated over 500 years ago in India, represents less than 1%. Central to their practice is the act of service, with the turban serving as a symbol of this devotion. There are five principles we need to follow. So firstly, you need to be respected, you need to be, uh, you need to be honest, uh, helpful to others, be kind. So I got that and I wanted to to save the people. Navjit's journey to the police force started with a recruitment drive. He passed the initial tests with ease and then came the moment of truth, discussing his Sikh identity with the academy trainers. I thought uh, that Fiji police force uh, had respected the culture and the religion. Like for Muslim, the Muslim guys, they don't allow to eat pork like that. And for Indian, uh, they're not allowed to eat beef. So I knew that the uh, Fiji police force will respect the religion. I was just approved by our say, commissioner. If uh, he approves, I'll be in the force. If uh, he doesn't approve, I have to choose another career for me. So I just waited and uh, I'm very thankful that uh, our say, commissioner had uh, approved approve for me to wear a turban in a Fiji police car. Assistant Commissioner Melissa Teki saw Navjit's request as an opportunity to showcase Fiji's diversity. And with declining community trust in the force, Navjit's journey presented a chance to rebuild bridges within the community. Uh, he did well. Uh, so, uh, and we thought that uh, because that's... Uh, allowing him to meet our minimum qualification requirement for anybody who wish to be a police officer. Uh, and that's entitled him to, to be part of any organization like a Fiji police, which has uh, service uh, as its bottom line, must at all time uh, mirror the composition of the community that we serve. The part of, uh, of building bridges, part of strengthening that bridges, part of uh, restoring uh, trusts uh, from the community to us is for them to look at themselves in the structure of the organization. For the young boy from Draketi, the stand means more than clothing, and it's a message he wants to share with others. Just like to inform them to just uh, be yourself, 
be confident enough to hold your belief and be confident that you will overcome the challenges that you face. And that was Constable Najitha Sohata ending that report from Lidhi Mbavono. To health, where a new COVID variant is worrying global health experts and some Pacific nations, including Fiji, are also monitoring it. The World Health Organization has classified the new strain, JN1, as a variant of interest. Dr. Stephanie Vakur, an epidemiologist at the Burnett Institute, told Dubravka Volodya about this new variant and about the potential risks for the region. The JN1 variant has been named as a new variant of interest. It's not yet classified as a variant of concern like Omicron or Delta have been. Uh, and it is a sub-variant of Omicron, but it's evolved in several steps. So the most recent variant that it's evolved from is still a few steps away from Omicron. And we know that we're just seeing ongoing evolution. And as there's more transmission of the virus, it has the opportunity to change and evolve more. Mm. And I think we are seeing worldwide that a particular strain seems to spread perhaps more rapidly than, than what we've seen in the past months. Um, can you tell me a bit more why the WHO is putting emphasis on it and why it's spreading um, quicker? So it does seem to be more transmissible. We, yeah, I think we're all aware that there's a lot of people with COVID at the moment. Um, and there's been a large increase in the proportion of COVID cases in Australia and globally, which are the new JN1 subvariant. So this is what we kind of see happening over and over where a new variant arises and that is able to outcompete um, the previous variant. So it's slightly different. It's got different characteristics um, and that means that it's able to spread more rapidly and then that takes hold and then we'll likely see this one evolve into another variant and that will again slightly change. So at the moment, WHO and Local health authorities um, don't feel that there's an increased risk of severe illness with this variant. So there, while there have been an increase in hospitalizations, as you've said, because there's so many more cases around, we would expect as a proportion of cases that there's also a rise in hospitalizations. But there doesn't seem to be a disproportionate increase in people with severe illness compared to what we're used to seeing. What's the risk for the Pacific, given that we have such high case numbers in Australia? So I think there's a several, several issues here. So there was kind of a surge of cases in late November, December, as we often see around Christmas, there's more people traveling, having gatherings. And then as that was increasing, then this new JN1 variant really took hold and that's led to an increase on top of the increase. So there really are a lot of cases around at the moment. In terms of what that means for the Pacific, um, Australia, particularly New South Wales and Victoria, are doing a lot of monitoring still. They're monitoring wastewater. They look at hospital reports, cases, deaths, but that's not necessarily happening as quickly in all countries in the Pacific. Fiji has recently released an update and I know that they're monitoring the situation closely. So we do rely on other data, other evidence um, where that's available. And I think it's just really important for people to um, continue to be respectful and to protect themselves and others. And whether that is wearing a mask if you're in a crowded place, such as on public transport, definitely staying at home if you're feeling unwell and ideally doing a rapid antigen test. Um, and then if you are sick, staying inside um, or staying at home while you do have symptoms and wearing a mask 
if you do have to go out and just being really cognizant of staying away from people that might be at higher risk of severe disease. So elderly people, immunocompromised people, um, so that way you don't pass on. Even if you're not sick yet, you don't know if you're potentially about to get sick. So just keeping that in mind as well. And I guess a lot of people might perhaps still have tests from previous uh, COVID outbreaks. Are these tests working for these new variants? So it's important to make sure that your tests aren't expired. So there's usually an expiry date on the box or on the packet and to make sure they haven't been stored in really hot or humid conditions because that could affect the test results. But usually providing you see that control line come up, that means the test is valid when you've done it. In terms of detecting different variants, usually the tests um, use a different protein or a different set of proteins than the spike protein, which is what really commonly is mutating. And that's what we've seen with JN1. There's 30 new mutations, but they're mostly around this spike protein. So the tests are designed to use really critical parts of the virus, and they don't tend to change even with new variants emerging. So your test should still work, providing they are in date and have been stored correctly. And that's Dr. Stephanie Vakir talking to Dubrovka Volodier. That brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. For any of our stories, you can head to abc.net.au forward slash Pacific. And you can hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time. But that's me for this week because tomorrow it's your sports edition with Richard Hewitt at 6am PNG time. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia because news is next, followed by Nisha Daly. Have a safe and amazing weekend. I'll see you next week. And this is Pacific Beat.